Now, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds to understand your word, your holy word, as we give our hearts and minds to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So for the last uh, couple months, we have been in a series going through these last chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapters where Jesus approaches his death on the cross, and then the climactic ending where on the third day he's raised from the dead. And what we've been doing in these chapters of Matthew 26 and 27 is each passage, we're taking each passage in order, and each passage tells us something different about the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross. You, know, you might ask a question. I know Jesus' death on the cross is important. What does it mean? And it turns out there's layers and layers and layers of meaning. I hope that's been remarkable to you. It's been to me that there's so much depth to this one event of love and uh, our Savior dying for us. But, um, you know, when I started this series, I was talking with one of our elders, Brandon Ellis, and I told him, you know, I got this plan as I'm going through the end of Matthew that each passage is, says something different about the cross. cross. I really think it's all going to work together perfectly. And then Brandon said, hey, it's a great idea. 
until it doesn't work. <laughs> until you come to a passage that's not about the cross. He says, you know, God has a way of doing that. When we try to lay our plans and formulas on his word, he always breaks those formulas. And so today we're coming to the passage that's not about the cross. It's about Peter, Peter's denial of Jesus, and then Judas, who realizes that he's betrayed Jesus, and he hangs himself. And so uh, even though this passage doesn't explain what Jesus has done for us on the cross, I think it does show us what our response to the cross should be. Okay, Jesus has done all these things for us, but now how do we respond? And this passage shows us that our response should be repentance. That may be a new word for some of you. What is repentance? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about uh, today. As we see how Peter responds to his great failure as a disciple of Jesus. He fails in the midst of Jesus' great faithfulness. And, you know, there's a real honesty in the Bible, that here are the leaders of the church. You know, the men, Peter is going to be the leader of the church. He's building this, this global institution. And yet the Bible is just very plain with his, his failure. And it says that the leaders of the church are men who are frail, who are fallen, who are finite. And it turns out that God uses their frailty for his own purposes to teach them about his grace and his love, which is going to be the center of their message. And so this morning I want to make four observations about repentance from this passage. What is it? repentance? Repentance is the, the turning away from sin and turning to God. That important, simple act, turning away from sin to turning to God. How does that happen in our lives? Well, four things this morning, and this is what they are. That repentance is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of discipleship. It's about a lifestyle of repentance. It's not something you do once. It's something you do throughout a lifetime. Second, repentance comes from the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God together. They work in tandem with each other in our lives. I'll explain that. Third, repentance comes from a sorrow for our sin. That's an important part that we feel grief about our sins and how we've you know, turned against God. And then the last thing is that repentance is the thing that leads to transformation. To experience transformation and change in our lives, repentance is at the core, okay? So four things this morning. The first is this. Repentance is the lifestyle of discipleship. And, you know, as we come to this passage about Peter three times denying Jesus, let me just set the stage here. If you haven't been with us over the last, uh, last month, actually, we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew over the last five years in chunks. And this story takes place during the Passover week. It's the end of the Passover week, and for the last, uh, you know, seven chapters or so, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for the Passover week, and Jesus came from Galilee, which is about 65 miles north of Jerusalem, with a huge crowd with him, maybe thousands of people who were his followers from Galilee. It was the Galilee crowd. They showed up in Jerusalem, and there was this tension between the people who were in Jerusalem and these foreigners from Galilee who had this leader. And they showed up with a big crowd. So when, they, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, all the Galilee crowd, they were singing, you know, Hosanna's to the son of David, the king. You know, the Messiah has come and they're praising him. And then the Jerusalem crowd, just a week later, is yelling, crucify him. And so they have very differing views on who Jesus is. And Jesus all week has been in the temple. He's been debating people and debating the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the, and the, and the, the priests and the, and the elders. And so it's this tension between the Galileans, Jesus' 
disciples. And the, the Jerusalem, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem that you see in this passage, look, you'll see it a number of times. Look at verse 69 where it says, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with who? Jesus the Galilean. You're part of the Galilean crowd. Verse 71. And when he went out of the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was kind of backwoods town up in Galilee, right? Another Galilean. And then verse 73, look what they say again. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. So the Galileans, they spoke a different dialect of Aramaic. And again, they, you know, they were foreigners, and there was a lot of hostility towards these foreigners. And the reason I tell you all this is because one of the things that's interesting about this passage where Peter denies Jesus, I think we often think of it as a total failure. The leader of Jesus' disciples denies him. But one commentator has made the observation that there are some positive notes about Peter in this passage. You know, Peter followed Jesus all the way to the high priest's house. I mean, there's maybe a crowd of thousands. You know, Jesus fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. You know, he had a huge crowds of people following him. They've all disappeared. And Jesus, er, Peter is the last one who has stayed with Jesus all the way to the house. And then even while he's denying Jesus, the words of Jesus are ringing in his head and he's listening to the words of Jesus. He's acting like a disciple. And this whole scene... Peter's great failure of his Lord happens within the context of being a disciple of Jesus. The failure happens as a disciple. He's not outside. He's inside. He's still one of Jesus' people. And, you know, I, I think, how many of you think that way, that that's a possibility, that within the context of being a disciple, there's room, there's space for a great failure? It's only when we believe that that we'll learn that repentance is not just something that I do once. You know, when I become a Christian, I say, wow, I've sinned in my life. I need to turn to God. It's not just something I do once to turn away. It's something that's going to be a part of my whole life as I walk with Jesus. You know, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, you know, he, he nailed the 95 theses on, in, the, in Wittenberg on the, on the wall there. The first of his 95 theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent... He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repent's not something you do once. It's a lifestyle that I enter into of turning away from my sin and turning to God, to know God and receive his grace. And that's how you live according to his grace. And so repentance begins by understanding that a blunder of this magnitude is possible in the context of discipleship. Do you, how many of you believe that? I mean, how many of you maybe have a perfectionistic understanding of discipleship that that's really what God is anticipating is that I'm going to do this perfectly? And that's the only sense that I can really feel secure that I am one of Jesus' disciples. Here is the leader of the disciples that is doing this blunder within the context of being a disciple. So the first thing to learn is that repentance is a lifestyle. It is a lifetime process that we enter into as Jesus' disciples. The second thing we see in this passage is that repentance comes from the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The Holy Spirit always works in tandem with God's Word. And you can see that in this passage first. You can see the Holy Spirit working in this passage. Uh, 
look at ver- uh, in, in the Spirit, let me say this first, the Spirit reminds us about God when we forget him. And, you know, Peter is denying Jesus three times. He's not even thinking about what he's saying. He's just spitting it out. You know, he doesn't even realize. It was just earlier that night that Jesus had said, you're going to deny me three times. And he, he, he doesn't even pause to think about it. He's like, I don't even know the guy. What are you talking about? And then it says this, verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. His conscience is struck. Remembering that remembrance that happens, that's something the Holy Spirit does. You know, there's a, a place earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has this great saying where he says, you know, when you come into the church and you're worshiping God and you come to the altar and, and you're bringing your gift to the Lord and you remember that your brother has something against you, it's the same word, remember, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift, right? And he, he paints this great picture that he knows that we get these nagging thoughts in our minds that we just can't shake and it's kind of always on it. Oh, I've got this issue and it keeps coming up. And what Jesus is saying is that is the Holy Spirit. Do not ignore those nagging thoughts. And actually in another place in the Gospel of John, this is what Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. When Jesus' words come to mind, which is happening right here for Peter, in the midst of his denial, Jesus' words are coming to mind. He's remembering it. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. Which, again, an incredible statement of grace that here's Peter denying his Lord, and yet the Holy Spirit's still at work in him and teaching him and reminding him. It's God's love is surrounding him. And that's what the Spirit does is the Spirit reminds us about God. But working with the Spirit is the Word who shows us our sin. The Word of God shows us our sin. So against verse 75... And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This is a direct quote from earlier in, in Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, verse 34, earlier that night. A direct quotation from the scriptures comes to mind for Peter. To enter into a lifestyle of repentance, turning from sin and turning to God's grace, is always the work of the Holy Spirit working with the word of God. And so that's an important thing. You say, you want to be a disciple and have a life of repentance. How does that happen? Well, one of the first things is, is you must abide in God's word, hear God's word. You know, that's one of the reasons why coming here, you know, God knows you have a busy life. You have your job and you have relationships and you have a family you're attending to and your mind's going about all these things. And he says, all right, the place to start is I'm going to I'm set apart a day to stop the busyness and for you to focus and hear my word addressed to you. And, you know, this service is filled with the word of God, right? All the way from the call to worship, all the way to the end, you know, to the offering. It's just the word of God and the confession and the assurance of pardon. All these things are to bring God's word to bear in our lives. And it is the word of God that shows us who we are and shows us who God is. And so that's one of the things we say, this is a discipline. This is a routine, this is a rhythm of my life that I have to have if I'm going to have a life of repentance, is to hear the word of God. But, I, you know, I should also say, I, you know, I, I feel like I've heard this like five times, you know, maybe it's just on the radio or in podcasts and things. It, Non-Christians saying this, people who aren't Christians, who say, you know, one of the most important things in their life is to begin their day with reading. I don't know how many times I've heard people say this, that to begin, before they do anything else, they say, I need to begin with reflection. It's the only time I can, and they're not, you know, reading the Bible, they're reading other books. 
But they're realizing they were made that way to have some meditation and some reflection in our life that we're thinking about things. And that's a question for us. Do we have any routine in our life to hear the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to direct us to God's grace? Okay? So repentance is, on the one hand, it's a lifestyle. It's not a one-time thing, right? Turn away from my sin and turn to God. It's something I'm doing throughout my life. And that's how I learn about God's grace. And repentance comes through this tandem working of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God. They always work together. But the third thing that we see is that repentance comes from a sorrow over sin. There must be a sorrow over sin. And, you know, we live in a culture that is uh, a self-esteem culture. I mean, that's I grew up with self-esteem. You know, have good, positive thoughts about yourself. Avoid fears. Avoid any sense of guilt or any sense of shame. It's always bad to feel any sense of guilt. It's never going to be good for you. And yet, we see in this passage, I think, the beautiful right response from Peter. At the end of verse 75, it says this. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter is deeply broken about his failure. You cannot be transformed. You cannot experience repentance with no sorrow or hatred for your own sin. You know, that's what Daniel's talking about in a confession. This sin and evil is not something that's out there in the world. It's something that lives inside of me. It's in my heart. And I should have some disgust for that that comes from a fear, fearing God, a fear that God is the Almighty. Now, I know for some of you, when you hear that, you know, fearing God, is that really how God wants us to relate to him? I'm not into fear. You know, fear stifles me. It puts me in a straitjacket. makes me depressed. And, you know, actually, I was listening to a podcast this week, uh, the Tim Ferriss show. I don't know if any of you know Tim Ferriss, but he, he interviews all these people who are like the best in the world at whatever they do, whether it's chess or jujitsu or, you know, leadership or something like that. And he interviews them, he asks them about the habits that they do in their life and, and, you know, kind of how they live their life. And so uh, I I was listening to this one about Jocko Willink. Jocko Willink is a former Navy SEAL. I mean, this guy is huge. I mean, he just killed me in like half a second. I mean, he's just a giant. And And he, you know, works with businesses to use kind of military tactics and to help them with their leadership and the structuring. And he was answering these questions that people had written into him. And one person says, you know, how do I deal with my fear? You're a Navy SEAL. How do you deal with your fear? And it was amazing. Here's Jocko Willink, this huge guy. He says, well, you need to listen to your fear. People say, don't listen to fear. He says, not true. Your fear is giving you important information. Fear is telling you something's wrong. And it should alert you to that something's wrong. Now, you don't want to be debilitated and controlled by your fear. But there's important information that comes from, you know, he gives the example. If you're, if you're a student and you have a test the next day and you're scared that you're not going to do well on the test, what happens? You start studying harder and you get ready. The fear sobers you and focuses you. And it's an essential part of being human. And it is an essential part of our lives to feel and experience a fear for God, the one who made us, the one who is the Almighty. We don't casually just stroll into his presence, but we feel respect for him. That's not opposite to feeling controlled by his love, too, that God is a God of love. Of course, that is true. That's throughout the scriptures. And, you know, I think Peter probably should feel some fear in this. You know, look at verse 70, where it says, but 
he denied it before them all that he knows Jesus, saying, I do not know what you mean. And this key word denial, Jesus had said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he told his disciples in Matthew 10, he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father. Here's the leader of the disciples, the one who's going to be leading the building of the church, denying Jesus, the one thing that he says is a serious failure. And it's remarkable that, you know, Peter's denial, who's he denying Jesus to? Servant girls. You know, Jesus says, you're going to have to stand before governors and rulers and say that you believe in me, that I'm the true king. And now all of a sudden the test comes before the servant girl and he can't even say, yeah, I'm with Jesus and I believe in him. I mean, it's amazing. And so Peter feels a deep sorrow for his failure, for his cowardice, for his faithlessness. Now, I'll tell you, many of you say, Feeling sorrow, guilt, shame for my sin, that's easy. I, I have that all the time. It's probably, I, I don't need that. I, that's the main thing I'm good at is, is feeling sorrow. And, you know, the, the Bible says, though, that there are two kinds of sorrow for sin. There's one that kind of wakes you up and, and returns you to Jesus and it restores life to you. And there's another kind of sorrow that just, like, crushes you and, you know, it's deadly, crushing sorrow. And some of you say, I know both those sorrows. I know that they both exist. And this is what the Apostle Paul said, is that there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And you can see the contrast, right, in this passage. It's very interesting. Matthew has put these two stories together of Peter's denial of Jesus. And then in verse 27, Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Both of them, Peter and Judas, are overcome with sorrow, but Judas's sorrow leads to suicide. You see that? Look at verse 3 of chapter 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned. By betraying innocent blood, they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. This was not a sorrow that led to life. It was not a sorrow that led to God's grace. And for some of you, when you experience sorrow for your sin, you think that that means God wants you to punish yourself for the sins that you've done. You shouldn't, you have no right to be happy. You have no right to be friends. You have no, to have friends. You have no right for God to look on you with delight. And you sh- you're going to have to pay for your sins. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has paid for our sins and the sorrow should lead us back to Jesus, to his grace. And that's the amazing thing is that even our sins can be used by God for good to lead us to learn more about the depth of his forgiveness and his love and his grace and to humble us and to change us. He wants a sorrow that sends us into the arms of Jesus. And so this leads to the last point we want to talk about. So first of all, repentance is not a one-time thing. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's something we do throughout our life. And it happens mainly through the the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working together. So we need the Word of God at work in our lives. 
And it will result in a sorrow for our sins, a grieving of our sins. But the last thing is that repentance is the means by which God transforms us. You know, this passage is the last time we hear Peter's name in the gospel. His name is not mentioned again, which, you know, you may think, wow, sad. This is the last statement about him. And, uh, but at the closing chapter, or closing paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew, some of you know it's a famous passage called the Great Commission, where Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, you know what, you're going to make disciples of all the nations. You are starting a worldwide movement and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them about Jesus. He says, I'm going to be with you always. And you know how that paragraph begins? It begins with these words, now... The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. The 11 disciples, 12 minus Judas. So who's there? Peter's there. Peter did not run away. His sorrow did not make him run away from Jesus. He's still a disciple. He's still following, and he shows up on the mountain to hear God's call for his life. And, of course, some of the other gospels tell us that right when news comes of the resurrection, Peter runs to see Jesus. And there's another scene where Jesus and Peter have a lunch after Jesus' resurrection on the beach. And three times, uh, three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times he lets Peter say, yes, you know, Lord, I love you. And he believes him. And he says, yes, and I'm going to send you. And so it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, but it's repentance that leads us deeper into God's kindness. You know, that's the thing with Peter. This made him ready to go tell the world that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Because he's had this failure. Unless you've had those failures, you don't know God's grace and kindness to sinners. How can you go tell someone whose life is broken that God is kind to you unless you've been broken and experienced God's kindness? So God uses even our sins to teach us more deeply about his grace. And this is the great reversal of the cross. So let me ask you these questions as we come to a close. Are there areas of your life that Jesus is inviting you to repentance? Is there a nagging thought? But is this an area I need to go to God with? Do you believe you need to be punished? that you're paying a price. It's going to take time until you prove that you're good enough that Jesus will receive you. Do you know that that's not repentance? Repentance is not stop being bad and start being good. Repentance is turn from sin and let your sin drive you into the arms of Jesus, your Savior. Jesus is not calling you to perfectionism. He's calling you to a life of repentance, which is a life of of receiving God's grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you've placed this story in your word. Lord, you know our hearts. You know the areas where you are calling us to turn from serving ourselves to serving you. We pray that you would teach us about your love, that you surround us with your love. 
And would your kindness lead us to turn from our sin, to feel sorrow for our sin, but a sorrow that leads to life, a sorrow that leads us to you. We pray in Christ's name.